Section 8 of Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Section 8 An Interregnum Paragraph. Several years now elapse before I resume my diary. I continued at Washington, working in the Attorney General's Department through 66 and 67, and some time afterward. In February of 73, I was stricken down by paralysis, gave up my desk, and migrated to Camden, New Jersey, where I lived during 74 and 75, quite unwell. But after that began to grow better, commenced going for weeks at a time, even for months, down in the country, to a charmingly recluse and rural spot along Timber Creek, twelve or thirteen miles from where it enters the Delaware River. Domiciled at the farmhouse of my friends, the Staffords, nearby, I lived half the time along this creek and its adjacent fields and lanes. And it is to my life here that I, perhaps, owe partial recovery, a sort of second wind or semi-renewal of the lease of life from the prostration of 1874 through 75. If the notes of that outdoor life could only prove as glowing to you, reader dear, as the experience itself was to me. Doubtless, in the course of the following, the fact of invalidism will crop out. I call myself a half-paralytic these days, and reverently bless the Lord, it is no worse. Between some of the lines... But I get my share of fun and healthy hours, and shall try to indicate them. The trick is, I find, to tone your wants and tastes low down enough, and to make much of negatives and of mere daylight and the skies. New Themes Entered Upon 1876 and 77 I find the woods in mid-May and early June my best places for composition. Begin Footnote Without apology for the abrupt change of field and atmosphere, after what I have put in the preceding fifty or sixty pages, temporary episodes, thank heaven, I restore my book to the bracing and buoyant equilibrium of concrete outdoor nature, the only permanent reliance for sanity of book or human life. Who knows? I have it in my fancy, my ambition— but the pages now ensuing may carry ray of sun, or smell of grass, or corn, or call of bird, or gleam of star by night, or snowflakes falling fresh and mystic, to denizen of heated city house, or tired workman or workwoman, or may be in sick room or prison, to serve as cooling breeze or nature's aroma, to some fevered mouth or latent pulse. End of footnote. Seated on logs or stumps there, or resting on rails, nearly all the falling memoranda have been jotted down. Wherever I go, indeed, winter or summer, city or country, alone at home or traveling, I must take notes. The ruling passion strong in age and disablement, and even the approach of, but I must not say it yet. Then underneath the following excerpta, crossing the T's and dotting the I's of certain moderate movements of late years. I am fain to fancy the foundations of quite a lesson learned. After you have exhausted what there is in business, politics, conviviality, 
love, and so on, have found that none of these finally satisfy or permanently wear. What remains? Nature remains, to bring out from their torpid recesses the affinities of a man or woman with the open air, the trees, fields, the changes of seasons, the sun by day and the stars of heaven by night. We will begin from these convictions. Literature flies so high and is so hotly spiced that our notes may seem hardly more than breaths of common air or draughts of water to drink. But that is part of our lesson. Dear, soothing, healthy restoration hours, after three confining years of paralysis, after the long strain of the war and its wounds and death, Entering a long farm lane. As every man has his hobby liking, mine is for a real farm lane, fenced by old chestnut rails, gray-green with dabs of moss and lichen, copious weeds and briars growing in spots athwart the heaps of stray-picked stones at the fence bases, irregular paths worn between, and horse and cow-tracks, all characteristic accompaniments marking and scenting the neighborhood in their seasons. Apple-tree blossoms in forward April, pigs, poultry, a field of August buckwheat, and in another the long, flapping tassels of maize. And so to the pond, the expansion of the creek, the secluded beautiful, with young and old trees, and such recesses and vistas. To the spring and brook. So, still sauntering on, to the spring under the willows, musical as soft clinking glasses, pouring a sizable stream, thick as my neck, pure and clear, out from its vent where the bank arches over like a great brown shaggy eyebrow or mouth-roof, gurgling, gurgling ceaselessly, meaning saying something, of course, if one could only translate it, always gurgling there the whole year through, never giving out, oceans of mint, blackberries in summer, choice of light and shade, just the place for my July sun-baths and water-baths, too, but mainly the inimitable soft-sound gurgles of it, as I sit there hot afternoons. How they and all grow into me, day after day, everything in keeping, the wild, just palatable perfume, and the dappled leaf-shadows, and all the natural medicinal elemental moral influences of the spot. Babylon, O brook, with that utterance of thine. I, too, will express what I have gathered in my days and progress, native, subterranean past, and now thee. Spin and wind thy way, I with thee, a little while at any rate. As I haunt thee so often, season by season, thou knowest, reckest not me. Yet why be so certain? Who can tell? But I will learn from thee, and dwell on thee, Receive, copy, print from thee. An Early Summer Reveille Away, then, to loosen, to unstring the divine bow, so tense, so long. Away from curtain, carpet, sofa, book, from society, from city-house, street, and modern improvements and luxuries, away to the primitive winding aforementioned wooded creek, with its untrimmed bushes and turfy banks. 
away from ligatures, tight boots, buttons, and the whole cast-iron civilized life. From entourage of artificial store, machine, studio, office, parlor, from tailordom and fashion's clothes, from any clothes, perhaps, for the nonce, the summer heats advancing, there in those watery, shaded solitudes, away, thou soul, let me pick thee out singly, reader dear, and talk in perfect freedom, negligently, confidentially. For one day and night, at least, returning to the naked source, life of us all, to the breast of the great silent savage, all except of mother. Alas! How many of us are so sodden? How many have wandered so far away? That return is almost impossible. But to my jottings, take them as they come, from the heap without particular selection. There is little consecutiveness in dates. They run any time within nearly five or six years. Each was carelessly penciled in the open air, at the time and place. The printers will learn this to some vexation, perhaps, as much of their copy is from those hastily written first notes. BIRDS MIGRATING AT MIDNIGHT Did you ever chance to hear the midnight flight of birds passing through the air and darkness overhead, in countless armies changing their earlier late summer habitat? It is something not to be forgotten. A friend called me up just after twelve last night to mark the peculiar noise of unusually immense flocks migrating north, rather late this year, in the silence, shadow, and delicious odor of the hour, the natural perfume belonging to the night alone. I thought it rare music. You could hear the characteristic motion. Once or twice the rush of mighty wings. But often a velvety rustle, long drawn out, sometimes quite near, with continual calls and chirps, and some song notes. It all lasted from twelve till after three. Once in a while the species was plainly distinguishable. I could make out the bobolink, tangier, Wilson's thrush, white-crowned sparrow, and occasionally from high in the air came the notes of the plover. Bumblebees May month, month of swarming, singing, mating birds, the bumblebee month, month of the flowering lilacs, and then my own birth month. As I jot this paragraph, I am out just after sunrise, and down towards the creek. The lights, perfumes, melodies. The bluebirds, grassbirds, and robins in every direction. The noisy, vocal, natural concert. For undertones, a neighboring woodpecker tapping at his tree, and the distant clarion of Chanticleer. Then the fresh earth smells, the colors, the delicate drabs, and thin blues of the perspective. The bright green of the grass has received an added tinge from the last two days' mildness and moisture. How the sun silently mounts in a broad clear sky on his day's journey, how the warm beams bathe all and come streaming kissingly and almost hot on my face. A while since the croaking of the pond frogs, and the first white of the dogwood blossoms, now the golden dandelions in endless profusion, spotting the ground everywhere. The white cherry and pear blows, the wild violets with their blue eyes looking up and saluting my feet as I saunter the wood edge, the rosy blush of the budding apple trees, the light clear emerald hue of the wheat fields, 
the darker green of the rye, a warm elasticity pervading the air, the cedar bushes profusely decked with their little brown apples, the summer fully awakening, the convocation of black birds, garrulous flocks of them gathering on some tree, and making the hour and place noisy as I sit near. Later, nature marches in procession, in sections like the corps of an army. All have done much for me, and still do. But for the last two days it has been the great wild bee, the humble bee, or bumble, as the children call him. As I walk, or hobble, from the farmhouse down to the creek, I traverse the before-mentioned lane, fenced by old rails with many splits, splinters, breaks, holes, etc., the choice habitat of those crooning, hairy insects. Up and down and by and between these rails they swarm and dart and fly in countless myriads. As I wind slowly along I am often accompanied with a moving cloud of them. They play a leading part in my morning, midday, or sunset rambles, and often dominate the landscape in a way I never before thought of. Fill the long lane, not by scores or hundreds only, but by thousands. Large and vivacious and swift, with wonderful momentum and a loud swelling, perpetual hum. Varied now and then by something almost like a shriek, they dart to and fro in rapid flashes, chasing each other, and, little things as they are, conveying to me a new and pronounced sense of strength, beauty, vitality, and movement. Are they in their mating season? Or what is the meaning of this plentitude, swiftness, eagerness, display? As I walked I thought I was followed by a particular swarm, but upon observation I saw that it was a rapid succession of changing swarms one after another. As I write, I am seated under a big, wild cherry-tree. The warm day tempered by partial clouds and a fresh breeze, neither too heavy nor too light, and here I sit, long and long, enveloped in the deep musical drone of these bees, flitting, balancing, darting to and fro about me by hundreds, big fellows, with light yellow jackets, great glistening, swelling bodies, stumpy heads, and gauzy wings, humming their perpetual, rich, mellow boom. Is there not a hint in it for a musical composition, of which it should be the background, some bumblebee symphony? How it all nourishes, lulls me, in the way most needed, the open air, the rye-fields, the apple-orchards. The last two days have been faultless in sun, breeze, temperature, and everything. Never two more perfect days, and I have enjoyed them wonderfully. My health is somewhat better, and my spirit at peace. Yet the anniversary of the saddest loss and sorrow of my life is close at hand. Another jotting, another perfect day, forenoon from seven to nine, two hours, enveloped in sound of bumblebees and bird music. Down in the apple trees and in a neighboring cedar were three or four russet-back thrushes, each singing his best, and rolling in ways I'd never heard surpassed. Two hours I abandoned myself to hearing them, and indolently absorbing the scene. Almost every bird I notice has a special time in the year, sometimes limited to a few days, when it sings its best, and now is the period of these russet-backs. Meanwhile, up and down the lane, the darting, droning, musical bumblebees, a great swarm again from my entourage as I return home, 
moving along with me as before. As I write this, two or three weeks later, I am sitting near the brook under a tulip tree, seventy feet high, thick with the fresh verdure of its young maturity, a beautiful object, every branch, every leaf, perfect. From top to bottom, seeking the sweet juice in the blossoms, it swarms with myriads of these wild bees, whose loud and steady humming makes an undertone to the whole, and to my mood and the hour, all of which I will bring to a close by extracting the following verses from Henry A. Beer's little volume. As I lay yonder in tall grass, a drunken bumblebee went past. Delirious with honey toddy, the golden sash about its body, scarce kept it in his swollen belly, distent with honeysuckle jelly, rose liquor and the sweet pea-wine, had filled his soul with song divine. Deep had he drunk the warm night through. His hairy thighs were wet with dew, Full many an antic he had played, While the world went round through sleep and shade. Oft had he lit with thirsty lip Some flower-cups nectared sweets to sip, When on smooth petals he would slip, Or over-tangled stamens trip, And headlong in the pollen rolled, Crawl out quite dusted o'er with gold or else his heavy feet would stumble against some bud, and down he'd tumble amongst the grass there lie and grumble in low soft bass. Poor maudlin bumble. Cedar Apples As I journeyed to-day in a light wagon ten or twelve miles through the country, nothing pleased me more in their homely beauty and novelty. I had either never seen the little things to such advantage, or had never noticed them before. Then that peculiar fruit, with its profuse, clear yellow dangles of an inch-long silk or yarn, in boundless profusion spotting the dark green cedar bushes, contrasting well with their bronze tufts, the flossy shreds covering the knobs all over, like a shock of wild hair on elfin pates. On my ramble afterwards, down by the creek I plucked one from its bush, and shall keep it. These cedar-apples last only a little while, however, and soon crumble and fade. SUMMER SIGHTS AND INDOLENCIES June 10th As I write, 5.30 p.m., here by the creek, nothing can exceed the quiet splendor and freshness around me. We had a heavy shower, with brief thunder and lightning, in the middle of the day and since, overhead, one of those not uncommon yet indescribable skies, and quality not details reforms, of limpid blue, with rolling silver-fringed clouds, and a pure dazzling sun. For underlay, trees in fullness of tender foliage, liquid reedy long-drawn notes of birds, based by the fretful mewing of a querulous catbird, and the pleasant chippering shrieks of two kingfishers, I have been watching the latter the last half-hour, on their regular evening frolic over and in the stream. Evidently a spree of the liveliest kind, they pursue each other, whirling and wheeling around, with many a jocund downward dip, splashing the spray in jets of diamonds, and then off they swoop with slanting wings and a graceful flight, sometimes so near me I can plainly see their dark gray feathered bodies and milk-white necks. 
Sundown Perfume Quail Notes The Hermit Thrush June 19th, 4 to 6.30 p.m. Sitting alone by the creek. Solitude here, but the scene bright and vivid enough. The sun shining, and quite a fresh wind blowing. Some heavy showers last night. The grass and trees looking their best. The clear obscura of different greens. Shadows, half-shadows, and the dappling glimpses of the water through recesses. The wild flagellate notes of a quail nearby. The just-heard fretting of some hylas down there in the pond. Crows cawing in the distance. A drove of young hogs rooting in the soft ground near the oak under which I sit. Some come sniffing near me, and then scamper away with grunts. And still the clear notes of the quail, the quiver of leaf-shadows over the paper as I write. The sky aloft with white clouds, and the sun well declining to the west. The swift darting of many sand-swallows coming and going, their holes in a neighboring marl-bank. The odor of the cedar and oak, so palatable as evening approaches. Perfume, color, the bronze and gold of nearly ripened wheat. Clover-fields with honey-scent, the well-up maize with long and rustling leaves. The great patches of thriving potatoes, dusky green flecked all over with white blossoms. The old, warty, venerable oak above me and ever mixed with the dual notes of the quail, the soughing of the wind through some nearby pines. As I rise for return, I linger long to a delicious song epilogue. Is it the hermit thrush? From some bushy recess off there in the swamp, repeated leisurely and pensively over and over again. This to the circle gambles of the swallows flying by dozens in concentric rings in the last rays of sunset, like flashes of some airy wheel a july afternoon by the pond the fervent heat but so much more endurable in this pure air the white and pink pond blossoms with great heart-shaped leaves the glassy waters of the creek the banks with dense brushery and the picturesque beaches and shade and turf the tremulous, reedy call of some bird from recesses, breaking the warm, indolent, half-voluptuous silence, an occasional wasp, hornet, honey-bee, or bumble, they hover near my hand or face, yet annoy me not, nor I them, as they appear to examine, find nothing, and away they go. The vast space of sky overhead so clear, and the buzzard up there sailing his slow whirl and majestic spirals and disks, just over the surface of the pond, two large, slate-colored dragonflies with wings of lace, circling and darting and occasionally balancing themselves quite still, their wings quivering all the time. Are they not showing off for my amusement? The pond itself, with the sword-shaped calamus, the water snakes, occasionally a flitting blackbird with red dabs on his shoulders as he darts slantingly by. The sound that brings out the solitude, warmth, light, and shade, the quack of some pond duck. The crickets and grasshoppers are mute in the noon heat, but I hear the song of the first cicadias. Then at some distance the rattle and whir of a reaping machine as the horses draw it on a rapid walk through a rye-field on the opposite side of the creek. What was that yellow or light-brown bird, 
large as a young hen with short neck and long stretched legs I just saw, in flapping an awkward flight over there through the trees. The prevailing delicate yet palpable spicy grassy clovery perfume to my nostrils. And over all, encircling all, to my sight and soul, the free space of the sky, transparent and blue, and hovering there in the west, a mass of white-gray fleecy clouds the sailors call shoals of mackerel. The sky, with silver swirls like locks of tossed hair, spreading, expanding, a vast, voiceless, formless simulacrum, yet maybe the most real reality and formulator of everything, who knows? Locusts and Katydids August 22 Reedy monotones of locust, or sounds of katydid, I hear the latter at night, and the other both day and night. I thought the morning and evening warble of the birds delightful, but I find I can listen to these strange insects with just as much pleasure. A single locust is now heard, near noon from a tree two hundred feet off as I write. A long whirring, continued quite loud noise, graded in distinct whirls, or swinging circles, increasing in strength and rapidity up to a certain point, and then a fluttering, quietly tapering fall. Each strain is continued from one to two minutes. The locust song is very appropriate to the scene. Gushes, has meaning, is masculine, is like some fine old wine, not sweet, but far better than sweet. But the katydid, did. How shall I describe its piquant utterances? One sings from a willow tree just outside my open bedroom window, twenty yards distant. Every clear night for a fortnight past has soothed me to sleep. I rode through a piece of woods for a hundred rods the other evening, and heard the katydids by myriads. Very curious for once, but I like better my single neighbor on the tree. Let me say more about the song of the locust, even to repetition, a long, chromatic, tremulous crescendo, like a brass disc whirling round and round, emitting wave after wave of notes, beginning with a certain moderate beat or measure, rapidly increasing in speed and emphasis, reaching a point of great energy and significance, and then quickly and gracefully dropping down and out. Not the melody of the singing bird. Far from it, the common musician might think without a melody, but surely having to the finer ear a harmony of its own, Monotonous, but what a swing there is in that brassy drone, round and round, cymbeline, or like the whirring of brass quoits. THE LESSON OF A TREE SEPTEMBER 1st I should not take either the biggest or the most picturesque tree to illustrate it. Here is one of my favorites now before me, a fine yellow poplar, quite straight, perhaps ninety feet high and forthick at the butt. How strong, vital, enduring! How dumbly eloquent! What suggestions of imperturbability and being, as against the human trait of mere seeming! Then the qualities, almost emotional, palpably artistic, heroic, of a tree! So innocent and harmless, yet so savage! It is, yet says nothing! How it rebukes by its tough and equable serenity all weathers! This gusty-tempered little whiffet 
man that runs indoors at might of rain or snow. Science, or rather halfway science, scoffs at reminiscence of dryad and hamadryad, and of trees speaking. But if they don't, they do as well as most speaking, writing, poetry, sermons. Or rather, they do a great deal better. I should say, indeed, that these old dryad reminiscences are quite as true as any, and profounder than most reminiscences we get. Cut this out, as the quack mediciners say, and keep by you. Go, and sit in a grove or wood, with one or more of these voiceless companions, and read the foregoing, and think. One lesson from affiliating a tree. Perhaps the greatest moral lesson, anyhow, from earth, rocks, animals, is that same lesson of inheritancy, of what is, without the least regard to what the looker-on, the critic, supposes or says, or whether he likes or dislikes. What worse, what more general malady pervades each and all of us, our literature, education, attitude towards each other, even toward ourselves, than a morbid trouble about seems. Generally, temporarily seems, too. And no trouble at all, or hardly any, about the sane, slow-growing, perennial, real parts of character, books, friendship, marriage, humanity's invisible foundations, and hold together, as the all-basis, the nerve, the great sympathetic, the plenum within humanity, giving stamp to everything, is necessarily invisible. August 4th, 6 p.m. Lights and shades and rare effects on tree foliage and grass, transparent greens, grays, etc., all in sunset, pomp, and dazzle. The clear beams are now thrown in many new places on the quilted, seamed bronze drab, lower tree trunks, shadowed except at this hour, now flooding their young and old columnar ruggedness with strong light, unfolding to my senses new amazing features of silent, shaggy charm, the solid bark, the expression of harmless impassiveness, with many a bulge and gnarl unwrecked before. In the revealing of such light, such exceptional hour, such mood, one does not wonder at the old story fables, indeed, why fables, of people falling into love-sickness with trees, seized ecstatic with the mystic realism of the resistless silent strength in them, strength which, after all, is perhaps the last, completest, highest beauty. Trees I am familiar with here. Oaks. Many kinds, one sturdy, old fellow, vital, green, bushy, five feet thick at the butt. I sit under every day. Cedars, plenty. Tulip trees. Liriodendron is of the magnolia family. I have seen it in Michigan and southern Illinois. A hundred forty feet high and eight feet thick at the butt, does not transplant well, best raised from seeds. The lumbermen call it yellow poplar. Sycamores, gum trees, both sweet and sour. Beeches, black walnuts, sassafras, willows, catalpas, persimmons, mountain ash, hickories. Maples, many kinds. Locusts. Birches. Dogwood. Pine. The elm. Chestnut. Linden. Aspen. Spruce. Hornbeam. 
Laurel. Holly. Autumn Side Bits. September 20. Under an old black oak, glossy and green, exhaling aroma. Amid a grove the Albic Druids might have chosen. Enveloped in the warmth and light of the noonday sun, and swarms of flitting insects. Begin footnote. There is a tulip popular within the site of Woodstown, which is twenty feet around, three feet from the ground, four feet across, about eighteen feet up the trunk, which is broken off about three or four feet higher up. On the south side, an arm has shot out from which rise two stems, each about ninety-one or ninety-two feet from the ground. Twenty-five or more years since the cavity in the butt was large enough for and nine men at one time ate dinner therein. It is supposed twelve to fifteen men could now, at one time, stand within its trunk. The severe winds of 1877 and 1878 did not seem to damage it, and the two stems send out yearly many blossoms, scenting the air immediately about it with their sweet perfume. It is entirely unprotected by other trees on a hill. Woodstown, New Jersey. Register. April 15, 79. End of footnote. With the harsh cawing of many crows a hundred rods away, here I sit in solitude, absorbing, enjoying all. The corn stacked in its cone-shaped stacks, russet-colored and sear. A large field spotted thick with scarlet gold pumpkins. An adjoining one of cabbages showing well in their green and pearl mottled by much light and shade. Melon patches, with their bulging ovals and great silver streaked, ruffled and broad-edged leaves, and many an autumn sight and sound beside. The distant scream of a flock of guinea hens, and poured over all the September breeze, with pensive cadence through the treetops. Another day. The ground in all directions strewed with debris from a storm. Timber Creek, as I slowly pace its banks, has ebbed low, and shows reaction from the turbulent swell of the late equinoctial. As I look around I take account of stock, weeds and shrubs, knolls, paths, occasional stumps, some with smooth tops. Several I use as seats of rest, from place to place, and from one I am now jotting these lines. Frequent wild flowers, little white, star-shaped things, or the cardinal red of the lobelia, or the cherry-ball seeds of the perennial rose, or the many-threaded vines winding up and around trunks of trees. October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Down every day in the solitude of the creek. A serene autumn sun and westerly breeze to-day, the 3rd. As I sit here, the water surface prettily moving in wind ripples before me, on a stout old beach at the edge, decayed and slanting, almost fallen to the stream, yet with life and leaves in its mossy limbs, a gray squirrel exploring runs up and down, flirts his tail, leaps to the ground, sits on his haunches upright as he sees me, a Darwinian hint, and then races up the tree again. October 4th. Cloudy and coolish, signs of incipient winter, yet pleasant here, the leaves thick falling, 
the ground brown with them already, rich coloring yellows of all hues, pale and dark green, shades from lightest to richest red, all set in and toned down by the prevailing brown of the earth and gray of the sky. So, winter is coming, and I yet in my sickness. I sit here amid all these fair sights and vital influences, and abandon myself to that thought, with its wandering trains of speculation. The sky, days and nights, happiness. October 20th. A clear, crispy day, dry and breezy air, full of oxygen. Out of the same silent, beauteous miracles that envelop and fuse me, trees, water, grass, sunlight, and early frost, the one I am looking at most today is the sky. It has that delicate, transparent blue, peculiar to autumn, and the only clouds are little or larger white ones, giving their still and spiritual motion to the great concave. All through the earlier day, say from seven to eleven, it keeps a pure yet vivid blue. But as noon approaches, the color gets lighter, quite gray for two or three hours, then still paler for a spell till sundown, which last I watch dazzling through the interstices of a knoll of big trees. Darts of fire, and a gorgeous show of light yellow, liver color and red, with a vast silver glaze askant on the water, the transparent shadows, shafts, sparkle, and vivid colors beyond all the paintings ever made. I don't know what, or how, but it seems to me mostly owing to these skies, every now and then, I think, while I have of course seen them every day of my life, I never really saw the skies before, have had this autumn some wondrously contented hours, may I not say perfectly happy ones, as I have read, Byron, just before his death, told a friend he had known but three happy hours during his whole existence. Then there is the old German legend of the king's bell to the same point. While I was out there by the wood, that beautiful sunset through the trees, I thought of Byron's and the bell story, and the notion started in me that I was having a happy hour though perhaps my best moments I never jot down. When they come, I cannot afford to break the charm by indicting memoranda. I just abandon myself to the mood, and let it float on, carrying me in its placid ecstasy. What is happiness, anyhow? Is this one of its hours, or the like of it, so impalpable, a mere breath, an evanescent tinge? I am not sure. So let me give myself the benefit of the doubt. Hast thou, pellucid, in thy azure depth, medicine for case like mine? Ah, the physical shatter and troubled spirit of me the last three years! And dost thou subtly, mystically now, drip it through the air invisibly upon me? Night of October 28. The heavens, unusually transparent, the stars out by myriads, the great path of the Milky Way with its branches only seen of very clear nights. Jupiter, setting in the west, looks like a huge 
haphazard splash, and has a little star for companion. Clothed in his white garments, into the round and clear arena slowly entered the Brahmin, holding a little child by the hand, like the moon with the planet Jupiter in a cloudless night sky. Old Hindu Poem Early in November At its farther end, the lane already described opens into a broad grassy upland field of over twenty acres, slightly sloping to the south. Here I am accustomed to walk for sky views and effects, either morning or sundown. Today, from this field, my soul is calmed and expanded beyond description. The whole forenoon, by the clear blue arching all over, cloudless, nothing particular, only sky and daylight. Their soothing accompaniments, autumn leaves, the cool dry air, the faint aroma, crows, cawing in the distance, two great buzzards wheeling gracefully and slowly far up there, the occasional murmur of the wind, sometimes quite gently, then threatening through the trees, a gang of farm laborers loading cornstalks in a field in sight, and the patient horses waiting. Colors. A Contrast. Such a play of colors and lights, different seasons, different hours of the day. The lines of the far horizon where the faint tinged edge of the landscape loses itself in the sky. As I slowly hobble up the lane towards day-close, an incomparable sunset shooting in molten sapphire and gold, shaft after shaft, through the ranks of the long-leaved corn, between me and the west. Another day. The rich dark green of the tulip-trees and the oaks, the gray of the swamp-willows, the dull hues of the sycamores and black walnuts, the emerald of the cedars after rain, and the light yellow of the beeches. End of section 8